Welcome to Restoring Memory, a COVID Calls exploration of the first two COVID years. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters, and since March 16, 2020, I've been the host of COVID Calls, a daily discussion of the pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. This is episode number 497. It's March 18th, 2022, here in South Korea, where I'm calling from March 17th, still back in the United States. The topic today, the pandemic in Korea with Hyuna Kyum, Solgi Lee, Hyunbin Park, and Joelle Champlay. And we're going to move directly into discussion and let me introduce my brilliant guests to you. Joelle Champlay is a doctoral student at the Graduate School of Science and Technology Policy, the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology, KAIST. She is interested in the intertwined relationship between technology and territories, everyday practices, and smart cities. During her master's thesis and the pandemic, she focused on the transformation of everyday practices of inhabitants by smart systems in South Korea. Anna Kyum is a doctoral student, also in the Graduate School of Science and Technology Policy at KAIST. She's interested in the materiality, socioeconomic, and environmental impacts of various wastes. She wrote her master's thesis about plastic wastes during COVID-19 in South Korea to investigate different practices to regulate or promote the use of plastic from the perspective of slow disaster. She wants to expand her research fields into revealing unequal relationships around waste and its impacts on different beings, not just humans, but also non-humans. Hoogie Lee studied chemistry in her undergraduate years and became a master's student in, also at KAIST in the Graduate School of Science and Technology Policy starting last year. She's interested in the dynamics between disaster and victim's identity, especially from a feminist perspective. And my fourth guest is Hyunbin Park. Hyunbin is a doctoral student, also in the Graduate School of Science and Technology Policy of KAIST. He received his master's degree in theoretical cosmology, but social and environmental disasters have attracted him, and so he's moved down to Earth to pay more attention to human and non-human lives in the world. His research interests cover broadly disaster studies, environmental humanities, and the social sciences, and he'd like to investigate how disaster shapes the world and to develop a way of living together with various humans and non-humans. Hyuna, Hyunbin, Solgi, and Joelle, thanks for joining me on COVID Calls today. Yeah, thanks for having us. <laughs> All right, so this is, this is part of the research team. Uh, we have one more member of the team who's uh, not with us today, and, and she and her work might come up as well. Jerry, we're missing you. Um, but uh, it's great to have the four of you here with us today. And I, I'd like to start, um, Kiona, I'd like to start with you, actually. Uh, you're no stranger to COVID calls. People should check out other episodes. Kiona has been a guest to talk about her research, and you've also been a translator in a couple of the most dynamic episodes that we had of COVID calls with live English to Korean or Korean to English translation. Thank you again for doing that. Those were stellar episodes. Um, <laughs> But let's talk a bit, um, first of all, maybe share a bit of your experience of the pandemic, and then maybe you could talk a little bit about your sense of how South Korea dealt with the pandemic, um, particularly early in that early phase, January, February, March of 2020. Thank you. Uh, thank you for having me again. And uh, thanks for this opportunity. I had, a, I had an opportunity to like look back over how the South Korea have been dealing with the COVID. And 
Uh, I mean, for my personal experiences, I had a chance to introduce in the other episode before. So maybe today I want to share a little bit more about, uh, not necessarily as an evaluation, but more of a description from the perspective of a general citizen. Uh, so in the early period of pandemic, let's say early 2020, South Korea started to get international recognition on its uh, unique way of responding to COVID-19. So so-called 3T method in public health area was what Korea showed very proudly, which refers to test, trace, and treatment related to confirmed cases. Uh, even President Moon called this uh, very proudly as K-response or K-panyok in Korea. So it can be said very much of our material and human resources were mostly focused on containing the virus and flattening the curve, both to relieve public anxiety and to prove governmental capacity to manage crisis or emergency situations. However, I think this successful response narrative has been confronted with several criticism as the pandemic moved to later stages. And I wanted to like, um, summarize this as four reasons, I think. And first, from the perspective of social vulnerables, uh, people who need special care, especially during the disaster, were ironically those who were excluded from the nation's care later. Uh, this was revealed from the very beginning of the pandemic, uh, since the first victim came out in the Cheongdo Denam Side Pediatric Hospital. And I remember that we discussed in COVID calls this issue more deeply with Korean Justice Party lawmaker Heyong Jang in last July. And second was from the perspective of surge in plastic waste, which is related with untapped culture, uh, where people started to rely upon like single-use products to minimize uh, the con contact between people. <clears throat> and I hope we will revisit this topic a little bit later in this episode. And Third was about the vaccines. I was also lucky enough to be involved in this discussion of this issue also in COVID calls with virologist Sunyang Pek in last October. And issues around vaccines were um, A, delay in vaccine supply in Korea, and B, fake news about vaccines which went viral in Korea in early mid 2020. So I would say there were some uh, notion of failure or emergency communication of the uh, Korean government. And the fourth, uh, this is not last, not least, but inconsistent and too harsh uh, preventive regulations, which mainly revolved around on A, business hours, and B, upper limit for the number of people uh, in private gatherings. So I think this is uh, still largely influencing citizens to have sort of like hostility toward governmental measures on COVID due to many difficulties such as like aggravated, aggravated financial status of small business owners and citizens fatigue on their daily lives. So uh, as of now, March 2020, uh, with all the, all these trajectories, which cannot be marked with just success, successes in responding to COVID, Korea is actually going through a little bit difficult situations. We had around 600,000 uh, daily confirmed cases two days ago, uh, renewing the record of daily confirmed cases almost every day from the mid-February. So, yeah, that this might be. Yeah, thank you for that overview. And it's been, um, I think that's part of the challenge of this. And I think you very nicely laid out, you know, the elements of the K response and the way, you know, some of those they look a certain way in March of 2020, and they look different again 
in October yeah. of 2021, you know, the span of this disaster has been such that um, the K response can't just be six months. It yeah. has to be a sustained response. I mean, I just want to say, I mean, you juxtapose that. I was talking to Kim Fortune um, mm -hmm. just two episodes ago, and she said, you know, one of the hallmarks <laughs> of this disaster has been the failure of governance at every scale in the United States. Mm -hmm. So even to get it right, and I think Korea did it better than right, I think did exceptionally well, particularly early in the pandemic, that's really something. But there's a sort of, there's a requirement. Now, the standards are high, and there's a requirement you know, that government have endurance to continue to perform at that very high level throughout the pandemic. I want to linger on something you just pointed out and people might not realize is that um, every day is setting a new record with cases here mm -hmm. right now. Um, what is your sense, Yuna, just, you know, sort of lived experience right now, how that's affecting people? I mean, because it's been a long road now in South Korea. All right. I think um, my answer is not really like organized well, but the sense and feelings that I shared these days with my colleagues and friends and friend family was people are just starting to giving up. Like uh, maybe my turn is soon to get COVID, and uh, like uh, people are not really respecting the role of government to protect people anymore. I think like people are more and more relying upon. Uh, managing their health individually and with the people nearby. So I think uh, people are uh, getting a little bit sick and tired of like um, being careful to each other and restraining from meeting each other and not eating uh, dinner or lunch together. So I'm a little bit worried about um, losing some hope and um, yeah, that kind of fatigue, uh, constant fatigue situations. Salgi Lee, let me bring you in on this. First of all, just to sort of check in with you and see, you know, how you've been during the pandemic, if you have an experience of it that you might want to share with us. And then we're going to talk a little bit about, um, you know, what it, the, the victims of COVID in Korea, because I think that connects very much to work that you're interested in with other Korean disasters. Mm, yeah. Uh, then I'll share my personal experience first. So I started my graduate program in the middle of the pandemic. So I even did my entrance interview through Zoom. So I frankly thought that, well, maybe I could somehow hide my poor English skill like that in the sense that I could hide my unstable eyeball going around as if I'm like confident enough like that. So um, after I came to school, one thing I feel sorry was about it seems to be um, become a little more hard to casually talk about the class content or some like academic talk. So as we all know, we usually log into Zoom by turning off the screen. And when the professor appears, we turn on the cam. And after the class ends, we just left. So I think we need more be courage, get more courage to say some idea that may might be considered to be silly. So that was my personal experience. And um, about the victims and supported group. Um, so I cannot say the general situation of all community, but as I keep in touch with a member from the Sewer Ferries, so I might say a little bit based on that. So 
Um, to briefly summarize, the pandemic surely impacts the speed and the way of their activities, I think. So there was a like maritime disaster, so-called Sewer Ferry disaster outbreak in 2014. And among the 304 victims, 250 victims were from one high school and their family, most, mostly their parents, um, keep doing various activities to shout out the value of the life and safety part generally. So these days, the one of their main focus is on building the memorial park, which is called Life and Safety Park. Um, I, uh, however, like I've heard from like one of the member that the schedule are frequently delayed due to the um, COVID preventive measure. So. Their families are heard like among various related groups during the process of the um, memory building that um, like you guys, the one who are speaking out about the value of uh, life and safety part. So we should um, should keep the rule more strictly like that. So also, on the other hand, like their activities are meaningful when the citizens participate actively because their goal is to spread the value of the life and safety in the world. But as you can, like we all can imagine, these activities are somehow suppressed in the pandemic situation. So these are the situation they are going through these days, I think. You know, I appreciate you bringing up the, talking about the Sewol Ferry um, you know, Families Organization. And something you just said is really important and people might not realize that, but it's still a very active part of uh, South Korean politics. And so to have all of a sudden the incapacity to gather in large groups or to do the kind of, you know, kind of grassroots organizing that they continue to do. Um, do you think that has set them back? Do you think that has had a real impact on their ability to continue to organize, Solgi? Um. I think they're still relatively uh, copying this situation a little well, but yeah, in, in some sense, they're having a little hard time because like they usually um, get, like um, invited more and more grassroots people, but these days it's really limited number. So even, even within the community member, they cannot gather like together that much. So all kind of the briefing session are like become a off like online. So few of the really like core member can participate then. So that kind of the situation are going on. But like one thing is interesting from her that uh, opposite part, like something who tried to hatred them, that kind of the activity also suppressed, <laughs> maybe thanks to COVID, but like, you know, there is other aspect too. That's really interesting. And, and uh, just to share, you know, a personal memory of this, and I think all of you will remember this as well. When, when you go to Ansan and meet with the family members, when they invite you, and we've been, they've been kind enough to invite us on several occasions, they have a, a meeting room, um, which according to, at various moments in the pandemic, according to Korean rules, I mean, it gets very specific how many people can meet. And so at the times when the rules allowed it, we did make a trip. Um, and in that room, they have the plastic dividers up. So we're in solidarity around a table sharing experiences, but we're, we're, you're constantly confined in your little plastic cube while you're having 
the conversation. And I just thought that was such a such a juxtaposition of two disasters in a way that might not be too obvious to future historians who would look at a photograph of that meeting. But those two disasters were converging around that table. And and, I, and of course, they're, you know, Salgi, to your point, I mean, they're very fastidious about health and safety, aren't they? Mm. Yeah, right. They are. So let me just take a moment here to remind folks that you're listening to COVID calls. And we're talking today about the experience of COVID in South Korea with four young researchers, Hyuna Kyum, Joel Champollay, Solgi Lee, and Hyunbin Park. I want to just take a breather here and actually just give you all a chance to talk about what it, Solgi started us with this, but what it's been like to be a grad student in Korea in a pandemic in a country that has, frankly, compared to the United States and most European countries, taken this extremely seriously, masking rules, um, distance rules, gathering sizes, it's made the normal experience of a graduate student, which is about sociability, it's about informality, it's also and about class and being in class um, and sharing. It's just made that really challenging for you all, I think. I'm just gonna open the floor, Joelle. I'm gonna ask you first, maybe if you wanna speak to this, just what's it been like being a student in the middle of the worst pandemic in a hundred years? I think, for me, also, there's the fact that I arrived in Korea only five months before the pandemic. So I started getting used to a way of working in STP and then as a graduate student. And then suddenly, oh, then you have to change again. Uh, so that was quite big. And then mostly, especially because I think our community in KAIST was very, very dynamic socially and very welcoming in person which helped a lot as a foreign student coming in a new country. And then suddenly this kind of support kind of dis not disappeared, but only could work remotely. We couldn't meet anymore. It was hard for me to, like, to have help in person or to meet people which I was familiar with. So that was really hard. And just generally, like we are, we are mostly social scientists, so we love speaking with people. And then... We can't meet, we can't speak every time. And I was working on everyday practices uh, with citizens for my own research. So working on everyday practices when you can't meet people in person and only through Zoom definitely brought forward some kind of barrier and comfort with the people I was interviewing and the people I was trying to share my research with. So in general, I think this was a very big part of it. So it's a different way of socializing uh, instead of STP and to do research, that was a very big part for me in terms of how this pandemic shaped uh, what it means for me to be a student. Yeah, Yanbin, let me give you a chance to come in on that too about being a student. You have a really unique vantage point because you actually were a physics student. And so you had to deal with the reality of COVID in, in the laboratory environment. And then you joined the STP community, which, as Joelle has said, is an intensely social in, in all the right ways, intensely social experience, which has been, you know, changed obviously by the pandemic. Uh, yes, uh, thank you for having me again. And this is really great honor to be with you in COVID uh, with my team, yeah. And uh, at the beginning of the uh, outbreak of COVID pandemic, I was uh, seriously thinking about changing my major with a concern about the Anthropocene and climate change. So as a stepping stone, uh, 
when I was in yeah their physics department, uh, I was taking science and technology studies in SDP uh, in that spring of 2020 uh, to broaden my view on science and technology that have influenced uh, shaping and being shaped by our world. And the COVID pandemic really opened my eyes to the truth that nature and culture are deeply intertwined as the STS course always told. And moreover, not just as the uh, academic interest, uh, those events uh, seemed to me, yeah, to reveal the precarious state of the world we are living together and sharing. So I felt that I have to change myself and to do something rather than study heavenly things. Since I uh, majored in theoretical cosmology, I always uh, yeah, studied the evolution of the very early universe, very near yeah. the time of Big Bang. So it was really heavenly things. And, and of the pandemic yeah, made me to concern more on the, the earthly and worldly things. So the very point I got affected by the pandemic as a student is that I jumped into this department, more engaged in scholarly activity through disaster studies. Uh, although now I'm struggling with uh, taking coursework and reading materials all day, so I uh, haven't not much in, uh, experience in the socially contacting other uh, other citizens and other groups uh, beyond the STP. So above all, anyway, yeah, COVID pandemic stimulated me for more ecologically sensitive life and studies. Yeah. Hyunbin, do you think if, it's hard to imagine a world now without COVID, but do you think you would have made this transition in leaving physics and coming into social science if the pandemic had not happened? Um, maybe if, uh, if, uh, pandemic didn't happen, but the ongoing, uh, precarious and predicaments, uh, we are faced, mm. well, for example, in climate change and other, uh, environmental and industrial disasters made me, uh, yeah, move into other, yeah, segments. Yeah, uh, you. Uh, well, I think we're all really glad that you. Um, it's physics loss, but our gain, and it, and it's also that um, you have a really keen eye for the connections that are not always so obvious to people between the, the sort of environmental issues, Anthropocene, and the way the pandemic is connected with that. That's been a big theme of COVID calls, actually, and it's one that a lot of people have been surprised by. What in the world does the pandemic have to do with the Anthropocene? But I think um, you know that's something that you've been following very closely. I just want to say something about the community of KAIST um, STP, which I'm a newcomer to as well, having only been here for 13 months. And uh, I was a graduate student in the Department of the History of Science, Medicine, and Technology at Johns Hopkins University. And it's, a, it's a, one of the oldest programs uh, in, in the world in that area of study. And we took great pride as graduate students that we had the most vibrant social atmosphere. So when guests would come to campus, we treated them right. You know, 
like even the most uptight academics ended up dancing by the end of the night. We we had fun and we relied on each other a lot, you know, because being a graduate student is isolating by nature. You, reading is something you do alone. And we did a lot of reading. But, you know, the way the seminars worked, the way that the colloquium worked um, and uh, I got to Keist and realized that uh, actually STP is that the social environment and the community is even stronger <laughs> than the one I had when I was a graduate student. And I mean, that's really impressive to me. But at the same time, it just underlines, you know, how the pandemic disrupts things that maybe you didn't even realize were so valuable um, until you can't do them anymore. And Hyuna or Sulgi, I don't know if you want to speak to that at all, but I mean, even something like the the um, holiday party, um, which is part of STP life, which I haven't really been able to participate in. It's a big part of the, the sociability of the department over the year. Shall we say a little bit about Yeah, if you that? want to speak to that, it's fine. <laughs> Actually, I think Sugi was not really lucky enough to uh, enjoy the, I mean, ha have a chance to have the year-end party. But I remember that when I was still freshman of the master's student, uh, we had the uh, last year-end party, but then the COVID uh, happened in just one month or two months after that year-end party. I mean, that uh, that was really a festive event. We all of the members of SDP are looking forward to, um, not really through, uh, for the one full year, but really uh, for a long time to celebrate like uh, good things happened in the SDP community for the year and uh, have a like farewell to people who are graduating and also maybe invite some people who are uh, deeply connected with us, like friends and families. So it was a really great time to uh, gather together and looking back the one full year, but it's really uh, sad we cannot really have those uh, opportunities. And also um, uh, on top, of, uh, not just the, that kind of festive uh, um, atmosphere, but what, one thing that we lost is that, uh, as Sergi Lee mentioned before, uh, we just turn on the Zoom right before the class starts and also we leave the Zoom room after. But before the COVID, uh, we had some chance to like go into the conversations in the middle of people are saying some, somewhere there and somewhere over there uh, and also getting to know people who are not, not really familiar with, but uh, get to know uh, with friends of friends in the classroom or in the seminars or even in the academic conferences. So I, I think we all miss that kind of atmosphere to have more opportunities to getting to know different people. Let me just quickly remind folks that you're listening to COVID Calls. We're talking about graduate student life in the pandemic, and we're talking about the pandemic in Korea. Uh, Joelle, I want to return to you and talk a bit about your master's 
research, you said something really fascinating a moment ago. It's, you know, your goal was to understand, um, you know, to be able to kind of immerse yourself as a social scientist and really be up close and watch how people interact with technology in Korea and particularly smart cities. And then the pandemic really um, threw a curve at your study design, didn't it? It did. It did because suddenly everyday life became very different than what it was uh, to begin with because you, you didn't go back to go to work every day and then suddenly you had to use all of those devices to tell where you were going and to register inside public spaces when you went out to go to public spaces. So I think that was one of the hardest part of it. The tech, but what was also interesting is that suddenly the technological aspect of our daily life, the daily life in Korea was very, very enhanced because you needed to have your smartphone to be able to register and, and enter uh, restaurants, enter any kind of buildings. And then you, 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 you also had to to all of this news about who, how many people were infected by your by text messages. A lot of the information also went through technology. So for sure, it was a very, very big part of uh, what the key response, as Hannah said uh, earlier, was. And it's probably one of the parts which actually strived the most. I don't know if I could say in a positive way, but actually really, really was developed a lot. And then I think what was what is interesting is for me, I generally compare with my own experience if I was in France back at home. And I think there was very, very big, the, the reason for which this part of the pandemic response and key response was striving is that Korean people and actually around me, I could see it, My they, they, people are willing to actually use the technology. And there is a kind of familiarity with using the smartphone so, so much and using this kind of new devices so much. And also the fact that I think probably Korea also had experiences with this kind of pandemic, I think with SMERS earlier. And then I think the Korean government developed a kind of response at least technologically wise and how the data, personal data were used, which was a little more transparent than it was for MERS. And that's why it worked a little more and it didn't receive sub completely sudden backlash upon it. And there was also the fact that technology wasn't always the only answer. Uh, if you go mm -hmm. into public spaces, you had the QR code, which seemed pretty new. And then you, but you also could just call, uh, make a phone call or just write down your name and your phone number on a paper list, which was a pencil, which was also why I think it worked so well and, and why people didn't fully completely have a backlash against this overpresence of technology. In general, I think the pandemic really highlighted uh, kind of a technology sense of Korea as a nation. So there is a new, the idea of exporting the K model uh, as Hannah mentioned before, which is also very related with technology, which are developed in what's called the K-Smart City. And then all of these new technologies which were implemented and which are actually very used inside of smart cities suddenly were way more visible internationally. And then there was an enhance in how much Korean government... Your description, I really appreciate your description of the multiple modes of um, what we might call gatekeeping, pandemic gatekeeping in a place like a coffee shop in South Korea. I was astounded when I arrived that you um, 
the many different technological interfaces that you had to negotiate, right? So QR code, phone number. So one of those two, so that you're registered that you were there. So that's mediated through your phone. But then, of course, also some device to take your temperature. And there are many different versions of that, either doing it yourself or one that scans. Something to dispense hand sanitizer. But then also, the, as you said, the notepad and the pencil as a sort of a redundant technology, but still an important one, writing, pretty old technology. And there it is so that the record is still collected. Um, and I thought that was really really impressive and particularly coming from the United States where um, none of those things were in place. Um, when I came here in 2021, it felt um, simultaneously very laborious to me because I, wa I was not used to that labor of interaction, you know, but at the same time, it felt very, um, and not maybe not everybody will agree with this, but I felt very comforted by it. It, it felt to me Yes, there's the surveillance aspect, data is being collected, and I realize that we, we have to... Uh, ensuring your position, ensuring what you do in general. Um, I think this pandemic really showed how much uh, control and how much information government and institutions can have or any kind of institution, private public can have about you uh, on a very, very short notice and in every moment of your life. Uh, I think if we take... All of us and, and you, we could actually follow us around for two years because every time we had to go anywhere, we had to log into something or to say we are here. So that's for sure one big thing uh, of the current discussion. And I think it needs to be discussed even more. And, and the pandemic maybe sometimes highlighted. There was some crisis around that, around potential witch hunt of patients. Uh, of people who got sick of COVID and that were witch hunted by the citizens through the information that were given. Because even though the yeah. government kind of, um, how do you say it, uh, tried to erase uh, personal identification, they released so much information that it was still easy for people which right. really wanted to find who people were to find about it. So I think there is need to still have a little more conversation about this and discussion about how to efficiently protect impersonal information and how much you can deliver to the public to reassure them while protecting the patient itself. Because in the end, the patient is already sick, he's already a victim of a disease, and then he suddenly also becomes a victim of kind of social stigma of being sick, uh, which is already hard on him and hard on his family as well. So I think there is a need of more discussion around this uh, and, and the balance between sharing and keeping private uh, by institutions, but also by ourselves uh, in in situation which might not be health crisis. I think that needs to be thought a little more. Yeah, thank you for that. And I think it's a nice reiteration of what Hyona started us with, sort of the points about the K response and the critique of the K response. And, and I arrived after many of those issues were already worked out, but I think, you know, particularly um, the ways that some communities were minoritized, that some people felt people who were vulnerable were felt that they were made more vulnerable by the state response. Um, those are narratives that we absolutely have to collect and shine and shine light on. Um, and I want to just also say, I think that's doubly important because the Korean government has been exceptional in promoting the K response around the world as a success. And it's become a brand. 
So I can't tell you how many times before I came to South Korea, people said to me, people who are experts in epidemiology um, uh, would say, oh, you're going to South Korea, they've done everything right. So it's already become a global discourse that South Korea has done everything right. And, and I don't think it's our job to tear down the response, but it is our job to collect the relevant stories to, so that it can be better next time. Let me, um, Hyunbin, let me come back to you. You were sharing with us your sort of personal journey um, from the lab to the seminar room uh, a moment ago. But I want to ask you a bit about your research interests in, because this has been a really interesting time to look at what we might call compound disasters, the way that disasters interact. And I wonder how you think about that, you know, with climate change and uh, seasonal dust and air quality issues in South Korea, not to mention the ongoing um, war, which one still experiences if you go to the DMZ. Um, and then to have the pandemic layered into that, how are you, how are you conceptualizing the interaction among these different kinds of disasters? Uh, yes, uh, this is the, uh, always interested in the interaction yeah, of the components, not not just components, but the interaction of them. Uh, anyway, yeah, uh, over two years, uh, COVID-19 became a kind of default value in the social uh, setting so that we can easily see how multiple disasters are overlapping and how uh, how much the impact of the each disaster is amplified. So um, uh, uh, let's start with the experience that our team also had in the DMZ. Uh, so um, due to COVID-19, I got to know that the stock farmers are aware of multiple genotic diseases before the COVID pandemic. Uh, they frequently faced with the multiple outbreaks of genetic disease, such as avian influenza and swine fever and cattle plague. So when they occurred together, it is called double-demic or even triple-demic. So uh, last January, uh, we had visited the area near the demilitarized zone in South Korea, which is located in the upper part of Gyeonggi-do and Gangwon-do, which means it is the borderline of the near the borderline of uh, with uh, North Korea. Uh, there was a field trip uh, held by the Center for Anthropocene Studies in uh, KAIS to meet residents and hear about the uh, crane conservation efforts there. So those areas are specialized in agriculture and uh, livestock industry too. So there, I can see the warning notice about the swine fever for the pig farm, uh, which is infected from the wild boar. So of course, there is a warning notice about the COVID-19 as well. And although humans are not sensitive uh, to swine fever, uh, pigs are sensitive to COVID. So pigs and pig farmers, pig farms uh, in the near the DMZ were situated at the double damage uh, at the time, I think. And and oh, this terminology, yeah, double damage can be applied uh, beyond the livestock industry, I think, uh, where multiple disasters occurred together in a wide range. Uh, so one only example I want to shed light on, uh, as Hyuna mentioned, 
uh, about the Chengdu Psychiatry Hospital. I also want to share the experience of the homeless people are multiply vulnerable to COVID-19 and heat waves during the first summer after the pandemic, you know. And uh, they couldn't keep safe distancing from other people in the society uh, since they usually have no room or only have fully conditioned room. And during summer, they usually have rested from the heat in the public places uh, where there are yeah, air conditioners. And however, they couldn't access those public places due to the social distancing policy. And I just want to share the problem of homeless in South Korea is long standing since after the financial crisis in 1997 and uh, transforming into the neoliberal neo region in the 20, uh, 2000s. And the 2020s, COVID 19 made their lives even worse. Uh, isn't it too long? No, it's, uh, it's, yeah. And can yeah, you say a, can you say just a little bit more about um, the ways that you know? So you talked about our trip to the DMZ that the the Center for Anthropocene Study at KAIST um, helped facilitate. And um, for those of you who are not familiar with it, you should. Uh, I'll put it out on social media, and people can can grab that. I mean, KAIST is a really dynamic place to study disasters at different scales, and the center. Mm -hmm is an important part of that. Um, but I, you know, it was the first time we were there, we met farmers who are actively engaged with trying to create habitat for migratory cranes. And, and I just want to linger with this for a second with you because that's, the necessity of that itself is a reflection of previous disasters of industrialization and habitat loss. And but it, and it also it's an example of sort of bringing species in this case, you know, cranes and humans into closer contact than they might have been before. And it's there. I mean, literally, you're in sight of that. You're inside very close to the DMZ. I mean, in some places you're right at the border. I found it incredibly disorienting to try to keep in mind all of these different layers of risk that were coming into contact and i guess i would bring it back to you as a question you know like how do you as a researcher like how do you keep that straight i mean if you have to choose sources that help you sort of put those things into one frame what are you focused on most um focused on most <laughs> that's really a difficult question mm, uh, uh, could you more elaborate the uh, research strategy? In yeah, I mean, and I think maybe it's it's mm -hmm. part of it is has to do with the approach of maybe the talking and the and the the interviews that go on, and I know you've mm -hmm. you know been interested in that. So, like when you talk to the farmers there, what do they say? Oh, uh, I actually uh, at that moment I didn't talk about the uh, COVID nineteen and also other uh, animal uh, diseases in there. Right. Uh, because uh, most of the farmers uh, I met are working in the agriculture. So uh, they are just concerning about the, uh, the crane habitat and the conservation efforts in their region. Mm -hmm. uh, 
So I, I, I would like to more yeah, investigate the uh, interaction between other uh, disasters, for example, avian influenza or right. uh, yeah, relevant to birds. One of the um, conversations I had recently, Hanbin, which I wish you had been there for, I, it was a conversation about um, about origins, pandemic origins, and I was talking with Christos Linteras and Monica Green and Jacob Steer Williams, and one of the things that is pointed out is, you know, when you start talking about zoonosis and the spillover of disease um, from one species to another, it's not just a one-way experience. In fact there can be evolution and then spill over back into what called deep deep reservoir so animal populations and that they can and that they believe that this is actually happening with deer in north america uh, with covid and so i mean i haven't seen that kind of discussion around the cranes per se but it does you know the when we start reflecting on um, changing relationship between two species in this case of humans and birds or humans and deer um, we have to be aware that there's, um, you know, there's a potential for a lot of risk being sort of created and passed back and forth. And I think that's one of the things probably you're, you're interested in, in the aspect of the Anthropocene. I have to really... Mm -hmm. So we probably, um, we just have a couple of minutes left and, um, I think we probably, you know, we should conclude, and maybe I can just do a real quick round. We can go around, and if anybody wants to say um, anything, uh, you know, as we conclude, one of my questions, of course, it, and it's too soon to say, but, you know, I'm interested how you think the pandemic has changed Korean society, if it has fundamentally changed Korean society in any way, how it may have changed Korean government or higher education. What will be the marker of change? Because, you know, those thermometers are are going away. The notepads are still there, I guess. The QR codes are still there, but a lot of the technological apparatus um, of the pandemic um, is starting to disappear in South Korea. And so it'll be kind of your job to document exactly what the impact was. Um, I wonder if you have any thoughts about that, even preliminary thoughts as we as we finish up our conversation. Hyuna, in, let me ask you first, and I'll just open the floor to anybody who wants to throw in an idea. Um, I think I can say what, what I what it's related to what I wanted to say in the master's thesis, uh, and uh, and one uh, my thesis was about one of the ways to talk about the environmental impacts COVID had in Korea. And uh, especially about the regulations, modified regulations around the plastic waste. And I, throughout the study, I think uh, I wanted this COVID-19 pandemic as a marker to open up policymakers some more uh, alternative imaginaries and um, different knowledges where a uh, disaster at one scale in a public health does not really uh, obscure another disaster at uh, at another another scale, like environmental scale. So I think um, COVID-19 pandemic will be marked as a crucial period of time. People uh, realized um, we cannot really necessarily prioritize one disaster upon another disaster, which has been often accumulated from a long time ago. So I want this um, to be a... Um, urge for public policymakers to think in that um, perspective. 
Thanks for that. Has anybody else wanted to share an idea about um, future directions of research coming out of the pandemic? Um, I would like to add that um, the one thing we need to focus might be the ways of the solidarity. So uh, we ironically become uh, more aware of the importance of the solidarity than before, but it became more hard. So we created like alternative way of the like uh, expressing solidarity and so on. So maybe one one way we still um, can find some hope might be so we can focus on some solidarity going on and how it changed them. That might be good. You know, I interviewed uh, Jason Ludwig, who's a graduate student at Cornell, just a few hours ago. Uh, and you know what he said, Sulgi? He said, um, graduate students right now are experiencing a feeling of solidarity and a commitment to social justice that he didn't think that the older generation, my generation, um, <laughs> uh, he didn't say it like this, but it, it, he meant it in a kind way, but it's he felt that it was a turning point right now. And it's, mm. I think that's congruent with what you're expressing. Yeah, right. Well, I should have talked with him. <laughs> we'll get you together for conversation for sure. We're trying to get him over to Korea sometime soon. He's doing amazing mm. research. Um, ben or Joel, I don't know if you want to add anything. We're just, we're on the way out now. Uh, may I add one point? Please. Uh, on this trend, yeah, that I hope it keeps continuing. Uh, that that is the um, uh, yeah oh sorry yeah. the people in South Korea are also being aware of the relevance between uh, COVID and climate change you know so uh, even Korean experienced the experienced the longest period of a rainy season during the uh, 2020 summer so probably due to the climate change. So many citizens, especially pro-environmental citizens, are worrying that climate change will gradually make a more adequate condition for genotic viruses to flourish. So uh, as like me, many citizens are aware of the trend. They are, uh, the climate activists also argue, argue the linkage between climate change and COVID-19 and provoke climate justice, not only for the blood of the people, but also for animals that animals and plants that share their precarity in the in this world. COVID seems to make us be sensitive to other uh, environmental issues. I think this is my observation. And I hope this is continuing. Yeah, thank you for that. I, I agree with that completely. And um, we're going to, Joelle, I'm going to give you the last word on this. I think one aspect that I would like to see continue is uh, how much it became, people are become more familiar with sharing uh, research, sharing their talk uh, from different continents to one another. Uh, you did this with COVID calls, uh, it like a lot of conferences, a lot of classes, and a lot of seminars suddenly became way more accessible for us as students, but also for us to speak about our ideas for us to show and have very, very interesting and very important discussion. Uh, and I think that should continue uh, even once the pandemic goes down. But I think that was just a small thing I wanted to add on how pandemic kind of changed what it means to do research and, and, and to be students.
that I, I agree with you on that. And I hope, you know, there is a sort of, it's one aspect of disaster, which is important. I'm going to say positive, but that I'm going to qualify that by saying um, it's, it's positive, but it's not always easy to predict what the impact will be, but it's urgency. And that's and and to see the world and its challenges urgently, even though we might be talking as Hume, as Hume was just saying, we might be tracking slow disasters, but to experience them urgently as we have in the pandemic, that's important. And making new forms to interact and learn when we can't get together to do that in traditional ways, I think is is also super important. I think you've all shown that in quite unique ways in your own research. You've had to work around. Um, none of you have been able to do research like I was able to do when I was a master's student, which is to show up in person at an archive, have a librarian help me day and night and work very closely with people and materials. You've had to work around those things. And it's really impressive, actually, what you've what you've accomplished. Um, Hyuna, I think you wanted to take a, a second here at the end. Yeah, just uh, uh, before really wrapping up, we just wanted to like celebrate you on your last morning episodes to reaching to 500 of COVID polls. We're really happy. And so we prepared a small <laughs> image to celebrate you actually. Ta -da. Ta -da. Whoa. <laughs> oh, Yana. Hey. Wow. Jerry, Jerry made this. Yeah, Jerry made it. with Jerry. Oh, wow. <laughs> Thank you, Jerry. <laughs> so, yeah, thank really, you we are proud team. of you. Yay. You're a great team. <laughs> and uh, having this kind of interaction is why I came to Korea. And uh, my expectations have been uh, surpassed a million times. And it's because of the genius of all of you and the way that you build community. And, um, you know, this has been a great call. And I really appreciate uh, you taking time out of the many other things you're doing to talk with us here as we're getting close to the 500th episode. What a nice gesture. And uh, maybe it's a small advertisement to others around the world who are considering graduate study in science and technology policy. Could you imagine being in a better environment than this one? Come study with us at KAIST. <laughs> so, um, we should close there, uh, just reminding everyone that you've been listening to a special Restoring Memory episode of COVID Calls as we're getting close to the 500th episode. And momentarily, I'll be back on, so please do stay on. Uh, I'll be interviewing Tycoza uh, founder and Tyco drum master Marco Leonhard. So you don't want to miss that live performance of Tyco drumming. Hyunbin Park, Hina Kyung, Songi Lee, Joel Champlay, thanks for who you are and what you do, and thanks for this time today. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you next time on COVID Calls.